All right, so let's go, uh, we're opening to John in our Bibles, John chapter 2. Again, we're heading back into our, uh, our series, Written So That You Might Believe, and that's based on John 20, 31. That passage says, but these are written, that's the work and life of Jesus, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So we, uh, the last sermon we did on this was actually part 16, and it was out of John uh, chapter 2, and it was uh, Jesus at the wedding in Cana turning the water into wine, and, and just really reiterating the fact that when the, when the joys run out in this life, Jesus is the one who provides. Jesus is the one who fulfills. He's the one who sustains. So, uh, and moving on from that, these are signs that started to be developed and seen uh, in life, and, and signs of Jesus and his, his uh, sonship, the, that he's the Messiah. And that at that wedding, we see that he did these signs, and the disciples were in awe, and they believed. It wasn't for all the people to see and, and to know, but the disciples saw, and they knew, and they saw and believed. Again, these are written that we might believe that he's the Messiah. So today, as we move forward, we're moving into the place where after this wedding, they, they retreat a little bit, and then they come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's, it's exciting and expectant time. And we see Jesus in, this, in a new light, not just a servant kind of in the back serving, right? Because we see a, a loving, compassionate Jesus that way. But today, we see Jesus in a whole different light, not just loving and compassionate sitting in the back. He is in the forefront, and he is overturning tables and whipping people out of God's temple because of what they've turned it into. So, so I, w- I want to just kind of make an analogy here. I thought I read this in one of the commentaries, and it was an, an amazing thing. I, I love C.S. Lewis. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And in his book, as part of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, he wrote this book, and Edmund and Lucy, are, they come, apart, come upon this large, grassy expanse. And it seems like it spreads forever and ever and ever, and then it contrasts with the blue horizon. There's a huge field of grass and blue horizon, and, and there's this white spot in the middle of this green expanse. And Edmund and Lucy have trouble making it out, so being the adventurous type that they are, what do they do? They, they go towards it to see what is this thing that they see, this white spot in the middle of this field. And as they come across it, they understand and realize that it's a lamb. It's a lamb. And the lamb is there cooking a fish breakfast. And then the lamb shares this fish breakfast with Lucy and with Edmund, and it's the most delicious thing they've eaten in a long time. And uh, this imagery, imagery is remarkably similar to what we see uh, in, in John chapter 21 when Jesus is on the shore cooking the fish for his disciples, right? And the lamb here is a Christ figure, is the Christ figure. But when Lucy and Edmund eat this delicious breakfast, they also talk to this lamb and have this discussion about the land of Aslan or, or, or heaven. And as the lamb begins to explain the way there, something amazing happens. The sheep and a sheep's snowy white wool coat turns into this gold beautiful coat and his size changes and it's revealed that he was Aslan himself. And this is a, such an appropriate illustration. It's a, it's a great illustration of importance for our faith. The lamb is also the lion. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we see in Christ qualities that we consider lamb-like, right? We consider Christ lamb-like in his gentleness, in his meekness, in his sacrifice. And they are indeed of Christ. But we also see regalness and ferocity like that of a lion. In Revelation, we'll see a verse later, we see that there is the wrath of the lamb. What we're going to find today as we, as we go through this scripture that, that our hearts must be challenged and checked. 
that, that as we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit as believers in, uh, in faith, through faith in Christ, that we have God's Holy Spirit within us and we are now the temple and that he is there to clean us as well. And too often we, we make Jesus out to be this lamb-like, passive, compassionate, meek, humble thing and don't give him the reverence and awe that he deserves as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that will judge the living and the dead. And we must give him the reverence that he is owed. So today I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to go into John chapter 2 and read verses 13 through 22, and then we'll, we'll break that apart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us. God, for the power that you have over Satan and sin and death, thank you that you have uh, led us to the word of God to be refreshed. God, today I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive. God, that we would, would really look at our own heart to see what the idols might be inside, to see the ways that we are despising the reverence and glory of God or shaming it, hiding it, or making a mockery of it. God, I pray that you would not only be the lamb who sacrificed everything for us, but you would be the lion of our lives as well, the one who cleans house and is worshipped because of his divine royalty. As we look to your scripture, may you give us wisdom and discernment. May you convict us of sin and move us to a place of repentance and obedience. That God, we would desire to chase after you as our greatest treasure. Embrace you only and forsake everything else. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 22. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. All right, we're going to break that down today, and uh, really we're looking at the cleansing of the temple, and I only have two segments of this, two points today. Uh, They might be a little longer, but that's okay, right? We have two points today. Number one is this. In the the cleansing of the temple, we see Jesus' righteous anger. There is righteous anger here. So let's read that first part of that passage again, 13 through 17. It says, the Jewish Passover was near. Now this is, the Jewish Passover was that expectant thing. Uh, Jews celebrated and they, they, they commemorated the time when, when in, in Israel or when Egypt, uh, before they, the Israelites went out of Egypt, God, God sent plagues and God sent, uh, sent signs to Pharaoh to let his people go. And one of them was to kill the firstborn. Unless what? You covered your doorposts, right, with the blood of a lamb, and that you were covered by the blood, and that when the angel of death came over to to kill the firstborn male of every family, when the angel of death saw the blood, that home, that life was passed over. So they celebrate Passover. It's a big deal. It's this expected time, almost like Christmas is for us, and we just got out of the season of Christmas, right? 
I know it was so drab this morning when it came in the building, like all the Christmas decorations are gone. But Christmas is all about Jesus, and we're all about Jesus every week, so it's always Christmas, right? But they're expectant. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's custom that, that they would go to Jerusalem. They would participate in this festival. And then he got to the temple. Now imagine Jesus coming in, and as you, as you get the, narrow, the roads narrow, and, and all these, these pathways kind of lead into Jerusalem, so the roads get more and more condensed with people, and people are just going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So he goes through the town, and he gets to the temple. And in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, I want to stop right there for a minute because this, is, this was a service. This was what, what was a service for the people. And actually, it wasn't traditionally done in the temple. Like, they moved it into the temple because that was where you had to do business. And if you wanted to, wanted to sacrifice there, if you wanted to come worship God, you had to go through us. But that was not traditionally what was done. It was a service for worshipers. Now, the priests would set that up because people had to travel from a long ways away, and they, they may not be able to carry their, their sacrifice or bring their cow or bring their, 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 uh, their sheep with. And so they would provide that opportunity there. They could come and buy an, a, a lamb or buy an ox or whatever they needed to buy, doves if you were poor. And then money changers, people were there. There was only a certain currency uh, acceptable there in the, in the temple. So when you came in from wherever you were from, you had to make sure you had the right currency, and there, you could change it there, and, and you could go in. And it was, it was there as a, a service for worshipers. We need to understand that. It was a service for worshipers when it originally started. And it was something that took place outside the temple, kind of on the side of the hill, and you went and did your thing, and then you came to the temple, right? Free of, free of having to figure that out, and you came to the temple free to worship, free to sacrifice, free to give, free to remember, but they moved inside the temple, and in this part of the temple, uh, as custom would have it, this was the, the, the court of the Gentiles, the place that, that the Gentiles would come, but people would all come through and filter through to have to come to their place to worship. So they moved it inside. So it wasn't bad just having people selling these items and providing that as a service. What was bad is it had become something worse, Right? It becomes something worse. It wasn't just a tool now to help me worship God and go before God and find God as my treasure. It became a, a pit, a robber's nest, a, a den of robbers, where they actually, priests would sell franchises to people. Hey, do you want to get in on this business trade? Yeah, it's going to be great. You can have the money changers table. Uh, we're going to charge up to 12.5% to exchange the money. And, and, and then think about the animals. The animals were sacrificed, and then they were given back. Once they were sacrificed, they were for the priest to use for their own. So think what they're doing now. They're double dipping. Like, hey, we're going to provide the lamb to you that really we're providing for us. So here, thank you for giving it to me, but here's I'm giving it to you. They're, and they're charging more for it. And I want you to think about what this would look like. Because, you know, we, as our church, we have a youth pie fundraiser, right? We set up a table in the lobby, and we sell pies. And sometimes we have t-shirts or sweatshirts with, with logos on it and, and things that would help maybe encourage your faith or, or help you share your faith outside of this building or outside in the, in the community. And we sell those, right, because they cost money. But, but there's a difference here. We are not saying, listen, you have to stop at that table before you come worship God. You have to give at least this much. And we'll charge an exorbitant amount of money because we want to rip you off and we want to line our pockets. It's like if we had a table right inside the door that said, listen, come in here, and before you come in the main service, a certain amount. Oh, by the way, we only take gold or silver. So please make sure you go exchange your currency somewhere else and bring gold or silver. Oh, you don't have that? Well, we'll do it for you here for a fee. But whatever happens, that's going to take place before you can come and worship God. Before you can come and be near to God. 
before you can come and atone for your sin before God. And that's what was wrong with the picture. It's not bad to sell a t-shirt in the lobby for what we paid for it so you can have a tool to go out and evangelize. Nothing wrong to buy a pie from a youth who's going to a, a, a camp to learn about Jesus. And you don't have to do any of that under compulsion. It's there if you want it. But for, for you to be made, compelled to pay in order to come and see God was horrific. And that's what Jesus saw. So he comes to that temple. He comes in and he sees them in, in that court of Gentiles, uh, people selling ox and sheep and doves. And he also found the money changers sitting there. So after making a whip out of cords, you think about the fury in Jesus' uh, in his heart, right? There's, there's ropes on the ground from, from animals and from packages, and he, he picks these ropes up and he makes this whip out of these cords. And he says he made this whip. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen, and he poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables, and he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Interesting, he says, stop turning my father's house. Right now, this is an early sign right here. He says, stop turning my father's house, indicating what? That he was God's son. That he was the Messiah. And I want you to think, this was a big deal. There were millions of people in Jerusalem for Passover. And as they approach the, the court of the Gentiles, as they start doing business, as they start trying to exchange or buy a cow or buy a sacrifice or exchange their currency, there's a lot of people in this court. And Jesus' fury with a whip removes them all and sends them on their way. He did it single-handedly because he's God's son. And he says, my father's house should not be a marketplace. And his disciples are watching this, and they remember that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's in Psalm. We'll see that later. We see this unmistakable, undeniable fury. Jesus could not tolerate the mockery of the true spirit of worship. Revelation 6, 15 through 17 says this, The kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and every free person hid in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb is a bit scary. Kings, nobles, priests, generals, the rich, the powerful want to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. It's no wonder that Jesus was able to drive them out of the temple single-handedly. It says, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand against that? The Lamb was the lion. So why was this a mockery? Right, we talked about it was supposed to be the service for the worshipers, not a marketplace. So why, why was this a mockery? Well, because access to God as a treasure, as a savior, as a sufficiency, as the glorious one worthy of all praise and honor, was to be the focus of worship. When we come before God in his church, we come before God in his temple, he's the object of our affection. We should come there with unbridled, with nothing else in our, on our mind, nothing else on our heart except for worshiping and honoring him who came to save us. Those other things shouldn't be on our mind. He was to be accessible. And he was to be accessible to all people. I, I love our, our Christmas story, right? We had our Christmas story and the angels came to the shepherds and they said what? Behold, we bring you what? Good news of great joy 
For all people. For all people. It was not just Israel that got the benefit of, of God. God said, I want this temple to be a house of worship for all people. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 and following, 40 through 43. It said, even for the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, God, your name, for they will hear of your great name, strong hand and outstretched arm, and they will come and pray toward this temple. So again, it's about hearing about God, knowing who he is, his great name being made much of. And they, they will hear his great name and they'll pray towards the temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to the, what the foreigner asks. Then all peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and to know that this temple that I have built bears your name. Why was it a mockery? Because they were blocking God's name and God's fame and God's glory and it was not to be done that way. Access to God was cut off and he is to be accessible to all people because that's the good news of great joy, that he is for all people. And if you walk into the temple thinking, man, I, I, I want to get to God today. I, instead, of, instead of Passover being a, a worship experience, a celebration like Christmas, like something amazing we celebrate every year, we walked to Passover and it became this burden. Like, I hope I have enough money to buy my sacrifice. I hope I have the right amount of coins to exchange. I hope I don't get charged more fees. And you go into the, the temple wanting to worship God and celebrate his Passover and to, and to promote his holy great name. And you walk in there and you get stopped at the door by money changers. People, priests set up and money changers set out, franchises set up for selfish gain. And that burden is too great and God becomes inaccessible. So Jesus was a bit ticked off about that. We see in Jeremiah 7, I'm going to read 1 through 11 here. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out his word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. There's the idea, enter through the gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly towards one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery? Swear, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow the other gods you have not known? Then do you come stand before me at this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued, so we continue doing these detestable acts. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen, not only, not only was, was Jesus upset and angry and indignant and furious that God, the access to God had been blocked or hindered. He was also furious that this amazing celebration that we should be anticipating and be ready to worship and praise God had become so commercialized that everyone was desensitized to the fact of what it was really supposed to be. Does that sound familiar to you? 
See, for you and I, we just celebrated Christmas. And I, I loved this last season of Christmas because we had this season of Advent where we were waiting expectantly, wanting expectantly, desiring that Jesus would be seen and that he would, he would come in and invade and that we would follow and trust him and that this season would be all about him. But listen, like everything, it, they become over-commercialized. And our hearts are over-commercialized. And our selfishness and our, our desires and our ego pursues something for our own gain, our own benefit. It becomes a selfish holiday, a selfish celebration. And that's what Jeremiah spoke against by the Lord. He said, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Oh, you can do it on your own. Oh, it'll be better if you do it this way. Instead of just going to God in, in your humility. Not in pride saying, okay, I've done all this bad stuff. I'll go to God and it'll be right. And then I'll go back out and do it all again. That's not the way it should be. I would say this, that you and I have become desensitized to the greatness and holiness of God by our own selfish gain. The motives that you and I even walk into this building with are often that way. Think about it today. Think about when you came in this building, were you here because I can't help but do anything else than to worship and honor God. Everything I have, I'm going to give to him. I'm going to sing as loud as I can. I'm going to pray as fervently as I can. I'm going to listen and take notes and take his word in as, as best I can so that he gets honor. And that when I leave here, I'm going to leave transformed and changed and convicted so I can shine his light and spread his glory and his name everywhere I go. That's the motive we should have when we come to worship God. But we come in thinking, did I brush my teeth? Wait, did I comb my hair right? Is my, does my shirt look okay? Is it wrinkled? I, what do those people think of me? Oh, I didn't see them yet. Oh, where am I going for lunch? It's a little early to think about that, but I'm kind of hungry. Who's going to win the football game today? It's the playoffs. I better check my phone. That is what is called desensitization. And, and what was interesting is not only were the, the leaders, the religious leaders desensitized, they didn't care, they wanted selfish gain, but it was trickling down to the people. Jesus really had the problem here with the leaders. But you think about the desensitization of the people. That's what they expected when they went to church. I guess I'm going to buy something and get ripped off and maybe maybe I'll get to go Worship God and he'll accept my, my sacrifice. Instead of it being all honor and glory is to him. I want to be in his presence. I want to confess and have my sins atoned for. We're desensitized and we're desensitized by our own selfish gain. See, what Jesus saw in the temple was a lack of authentic reverence for God. And our reverence is important. Our reverence, the way we revere and honor God is important because it tells what we think about God and it tells others what we think about God. So what would your church tell? If you had a friend come to church, what would it say to your friend? Would it say they have to look a certain way or talk a certain way or act a certain way or buy something? They have to give under compulsion before they can enter? What would your church say, right? But what would your life say? Our reverence is important because it tells what we think about God. So what does your life tell about God? And tell about how much you revere God. The disciples are sitting there. They're watching this. They're watching this take place. And they remembered this verse from Psalm 69.9. It says, because zeal for your house has consumed me. See, Jesus was consumed by what should be happening in the house of worship. It goes on, it says, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. 
He, he felt, he had and he felt this zeal for God's fame. And listen, church, you and I should have and feel that zeal for God's fame as well. That should be what's on our hearts and on our lips and in our minds. Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, verses 9 through 11. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. See, the, the, the idea of this, if we go in without reverence, if we lack reverence and, and worship for God, we are hypocrites. It's no wonder the world wants nothing to do with Jesus. Imagine the temple that Jesus went into. Imagine the Gentiles who said, you know what, maybe there's something to this God thing. They're celebrating Passover. Let me go check it out. What would they have done as soon as they walked in the gate? They would have checked out. Because there was no appeal there. There was this, this heavy burden of religion and works righteousness based system that, that had nothing to do with treasuring God and finding Him as Savior. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil and cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Paul says we ought to be zealous. Just like Jesus was zealous, we should have that zeal and feel that zeal and feel sad and upset when God's fame and God's name is tarnished. Zeal for God is important. Zeal for His church is important. Zeal for loving one another and loving people around us is so important. Dry and religious ritualism, what was going on at that temple, it reveals what we think about God and it is not accurate, an accurate view of God. When our religious Ritual, rituals are, are priority. They're dry. And that is not an accurate picture of God. Zeal should reveal the joy that we have in Christ. And it should reveal our desire to follow him with our lives. It's no wonder Jesus was mad. The worship of God was being hindered. God's glory, God's name was not being revealed people were turning away and checking out of that system of religion or crushed, being crushed under the burden of it. So he cleansed the temple in anger, in righteous anger. Number two, cleansing of the temple revealed his messianic authority and power. It revealed his messianic authority and his power. I want you to think about this. It says right here in verse 18 of John 2. So, so the Jews replied to him. So he just did this, and it, it caused a stir, right? So these Jewish leaders, maybe the temple police, they come in, and they're like, what is going on? What, what are you doing? They ask him, say, by what sign did you, are you doing these things? What sign can you show us that you're doing these things? There's a few interesting things to think about here, but we're going to start with one. We see when Jesus comes on the scene, and John, John chapter 1 says that Jesus came to his own, and his own did what? Did not receive him. Right? He came to be received, but they rejected him. Right? When, when the Magi came from, uh, from the east and came to Jerusalem to find the one that's been born king of the Jews, he said, he, they inquired, where is the one born king of the Jews? We've seen his star. And that troubled Jerusalem. It troubled King Herod. That was a, an affront to his power and to the religious system. They wanted nothing to do with it, so they wanted to kill the child born. 
Jesus has been rejected and been rejected, and God's signs have been rejected and been rejected by his people. But he still has messianic authority and power. So the Jews, they come up, and, and he's just cleansed the temple, and they say, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? Listen, they ask for a sign here. What's interesting is this. I want you to catch this. They didn't come and say, how dare you like, come, come to us and say that we were doing something wrong? They didn't say that at all, did they? They asked for a sign. No one questioned that the temple courts needed to be purified. No one questioned that it had been, that it had been perverted from its intended use. No one questioned that the motivations there and present were all about selfish gain. They did not challenge what he had done. They only challenged his authority. And listen, you and I are the same. When we have sin in our lives, when we have an error in our ways, when we're doing something out of selfish gain, we don't go and say, God, why is what I'm doing wrong? Why do you think it's wrong? We know that it's wrong. We go and say, who are you to tell me I'm wrong? Who are you to tell me that I can't do that? And, we, and most of us aren't that bold, aren't, are we? Most of us aren't that bold to go to Jesus in prayer and say, who are you to tell me that? But with our lives every single day, we do that. We continue to do whatever we want for our own selfish gain, our own ego, for our own power, for our own prestige. And we continue to walk about and, and, and flaunt the fact that we will sin all the more. And who's Jesus to tell us what to do? We have power over our own lives. So they ask, what sign are you going to give? Well, I want to read a couple of those signs, and we find one in Malachi chapter 3, and, and we see this in verses 1 through 3. The prophet says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you, uh, that you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the, message of the, uh, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. This is a prophecy these guys all knew. And they have just observed something amazing. And they have this crazy thought to ask, what authority do you have to do this? But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Their demand for a sign was foolish. The messianic act of single-handedly clearing the temple was the clear sign of his authority. It's like, hey, what sign are you going to give us? I just gave it to you. I'm the one that they speak of. I'm the messenger coming to the temple. I'm the one that's going to be here to set things straight. And I did it single-handedly, and no one could stand underneath it. It's foolish to say, where's the sign? We see this in Acts chapter 2 as well, when Peter is giving this sermon, uh, verses 22 through 24. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. And this is going back to verses 19 and, and 20. Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days? It was a, totally a disrespectful statement saying, yeah, right, like you can do that. But Peter speaks of this because it wasn't just speaking of the temple that they were in. He was speaking about 
himself being the temple and their, their commitment to destroy him as the temple. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. List, uh, the Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth was a great man attested to you by God with miracles. So where's the signs? Right here. By miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him, destroy the temple. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. This was the Messiah who, who came to save and required faith in his authority and his power. See, Jesus came not to, not to end everything that was, that was there, that, but he wanted to certainly put an end to the ritual and the religious things that were going on. He wanted true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And he was on the scene now, in physical form, present, and that the temple was not going to be needed any longer, that he was the temple, and that what they set out to do, they set out to destroy the temple. But you and I, through faith in Christ, through faith in the temple, through faith in what the temple has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, can have real life. They asked on another occasion as well, uh, this sign. And I, I want you to think about this in terms of what the, the Jewish leaders were thinking when they were talking to Jesus. This happens after it, but still the same. Uh, Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Okay, this sounds familiar. They always wanted to see a sign. All the while, Jesus was the sign, and Jesus was performing the signs. And all the signs and works of Jesus were written so that we would believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, we might have life in his name. Well, let's see a sign from you. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, this is what he's saying. This generation that Jesus is speaking to, he goes in and cleanses the temple. This is the generation he's speaking of. He says, at this time, at the end, at this judgment, the men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment against you and condemn you because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And, and if you go back and look at Jonah, and we did a series on that, Jonah didn't do much there, did he? He was, he was basically mildly, almost not obedient, but obedient to God. And God saved the entire city. So the men of Nineveh, those who were saved by, by that preaching, by that simple message that, hey, turn or you're going to be destroyed. They turned to faith in God. They were saved. Those, they will stand up and they will, they will judge you and condemn you. Why? Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. You're demanding a sign. You're demanding a wonder. Something is greater than what we've seen done before. What is that, church? What is that something that's greater that's there? It's Jesus the Son, the Messiah, who's standing there, who just cleansed the temple. goes on and says, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Her life was forever changed by, by Solomon's wisdom, by God giving Solomon wisdom and showing him for who he really is. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying if you want the sign, it's here. I'm here. But our foolish, 
selfish, idol-filled hearts get in the way of our faith in Christ. We need some other sign. See, we must acknowledge that the one who has come is the one who can clean and conquer sin and death in our lives and give us life through faith in Christ. The call is for us to repent and to embrace faith in Christ because He's the authority and the power over death. We see this portrayed in Acts chapter 17. This is, this is Paul uh, speaking at, at Mars Hill to all these people, who, who, to the unknown God. There's a, there was a monument to the unknown God, and he's like, that's a great segue. Let's talk about the unknown God, the God they don't know. I'll tell you all about him. He says, since then, we are God's offspring. He made this argument. We are, we are all creations of God, God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Because we were fashioned by God, our God shouldn't be something fashioned by us. Therefore, having been or having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the whole world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. Who's that man? Jesus Christ. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's only one sign. There's only one Savior. There's only one person we can go to and be fulfilled in. That is Jesus Christ. And we're seeing this transition here from going to the temple to worship God to embracing God as we see Him in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, Jesus says this, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus was was referring to Himself. Jesus had now been revealed And he would be the center of our worship. And we see in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. So there's this transition that continues on for the church, that Jesus is to be the center of our worship. He is to be central in everything we do. And as we approach him, he is to be revered. And as we approach him by faith, he then indwells us. And as he has ascended to the Father and he's now in heaven, his Holy Spirit resides in us, and that now is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We see that in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. We see what this should look like now for our own, for our own hearts, how we get out of the way, what it should look like. It says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. Right? There shouldn't be a fellowship or a partnership with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does the light have with darkness? Or what agreement does Christ have with Belial or Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Listen, there's a lot that we need to think about. As, as followers of Christ, we need to think about the fact that Christ is coming and Christ has, has resided inside and Christ is doing a renovation inside. And there are things in our own heart, in our own life, in our own will, in our own motives that must be cleansed. That he is in there right now with a whip, driving out, wanting to drive out whatever is in the way and whatever is a hindrance to our worship of him, our pure worship of him, our humility, and to our, our witness of him. What is our witness of him looking like? 
So what's in there that needs to be cleaned up? For you and me, that it really does mean idolatry. It means the things that we place in, in the center of our lives that aren't Jesus. The things we put as a focus in our lives that aren't Jesus. We have to get rid of those things. Why? Because Christ is the greatest treasure we could ever have. And there shouldn't be a hindrance to the greatest treasure we could ever have and the center of our worship that is Jesus Christ. There should be no hindrance. And, and at the very end of this, what we, we see is, is that these are, look at verses 20, uh, last, last part, 22, 21, 22. John writes, he says, he, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, what is it? His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. They remembered what Jesus had done and said, and they believed. And for you and I, we go to God's word and we see that he is the sign, that he is the conqueror, that he is the center of worship. We see the works and life of Jesus. And what we know and we embrace is that these things are written for us, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Really believe and show it from our heart. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. Church, I hope you see that, that Jesus is worthy of our praise and our affection. Jesus is worthy of casting aside idols because he is not only a meek and gentle and compassionate lamb, but he is also the lion who intends to clean house so that his name may be revered. Amen? All right, let's stand and have prayer together. Father, we're so grateful to be here again and just to worship you with, with all of our heart. God, I pray that you would invade our heart right now. God, you know the motives we came in here with. God, you know the ways we fall short. But God, you love us so much. And you want to be the center of our lives. You want to be the object of our affection and our worship. So God, we surrender to you now. We ask that not only would you be the lamb that was sacrificed for our sin, but that you would be the lion. God, that is renovating our heart, that is cleansing it, that is clearing out anything of idol worship, anything that is there that gets in the way of our faith in you and our obedience to you. God, we want to make your name great, and we want to revere your name for who you are. Not who we think you should be, but who you are. We praise you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.